electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the future of the tech trade. Rate fears easing. Several stocks are trying to stage a comeback from Apple to Zoom. The investment committee debating now where that space goes from here. Joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, John Nigerians. Go to the wall, see where stocks are trading. Have to take a look at the 10-year yield as well. 140, well, that's easy compared to 161 or thereabouts where it got late last week. Josh, I go to, I go to you because I want to talk about Zoom. And I want to try and figure out what, if anything, Zoom says about the future of the high P.E. tech trade. You own it. You're the, I think you're the only one on the show today that, that actually does I'm wondering what you make of the reversal today, too. There's the intraday. Stock got to 440, and then it started going straight downhill to where it currently sits. What's up with that, do you think? Well, look, I think this is a company that is transforming, has transformed uh, the world in many respects. It's how uh, tens of millions of children in the U.S. alone have actually gone to school over the last year. It's transformed the way both small and large enterprises uh, work with their staff and their customers. And I don't think the genie goes back in the bottle just because everyone gets the vaccine and they're able to go out. We will still be using Zoom a year from now, three years from now, 10 years from now. Despite the fact that there's competition, they seem to have really grasped a large part of this market. They're holding on to it and they're improving their services. So uh, all of that can be true. And you can also say it's not a cheap stock. Everything that I've said is pretty well appreciated by the street. So right now they have a long way to go to grow into the current valuation. And there are, I'm going through that litany of, of um, items in the Zoom story because I think they apply, Scott, so broadly to so many other names that have become mid and large cap stocks over the last year. There are many companies that need to grow into the valuations they've gotten. So that's how... You could see a company like Zoom with outstanding results, just a great report, um, have a little bit of a, a reversal after an initial rally because it's not cheap and there will be people who take profits on great news. That being said, I have no plans to go anywhere. I think Zoom is a name that is going to be must own over the next five, 10 years, and I plan to stick with it. So, all right, Jim, J- Josh raises great points and it sets me up for, for the next place I want to go anyway. Forget work from home. Forget return to the, to the world. These are just new way of living stocks, right? That, that's essentially what Josh has, has just said. Zoom is going to be popular next year. It's going to be popular three years from now and five years and so after. However, there is the issue of valuation. And a lot of these stocks that we talk about every day fall into that basket. Transformative companies that aren't just going to go back in the bottle once we all get on with our lives post-pandemic. But we do have to wrestle with their high valuations. How do we do that? 
Yeah, well, uh, look, you go back six months ago, um, these valuations entirely justified. I think Josh used the word uh, transformed and you used it as well. Uh, Zoom did transform and in some ways save the world last year. Um, but we're coming out of this. Um, vaccines are going to be widely distributed over the next few months. There are certainly people who will still work from home. There's no question about that. But I think there's also no question that some people are going to get back on the road. I'm one of them. Um, we've all in business been able to not only maintain but expand our business thanks to Zoom. But I know there are new clients that I want to visit in person. I know there are future new clients that I will not win if I don't visit them in person. And kids are going back to school. And grandparents will eventually be seeing their grandkids in person instead of Zoom. So when I put all that together, I just look at the fundamental picture and the justification for a triple-digit multiple becomes hollow to me. simply because the economy is reopening. And I don't think I need to make it any harder than what I just said. So great report. No question. I mean, what was it? 367% growth in revenue. The problem is it's backward looking. And when you look forward, I just don't see anywhere near that growth rate to justify the multiple. So Steph, I'm trying to take a look at these other stocks that have, you know, obviously changed the way we live and, and may continue to do so. And I think of a DocuSign, for example, which had a meteoric rise. The stock is down, however, over the last six months by 10 percent. I think of Teladoc. That stock's basically flat over the last six months. It's had a meteoric rise over the, the past year. We have to parse it that closely. So stocks that have changed our lives and will likely continue <laughs> to do so, but they still have to grow into the valuations, as Josh said, And as Jim points out, as we get on with our lives, are they ever going to be able to grow into the lofty valuations they have now? Or do those valuations, those multiples need to compress to make the story really compelling for new investors? Well, Scott, valuations always matter, no matter what sector, what industry, what stock, right? So it's what you're willing to pay. And and quite frankly, I think there are plenty of places in technology that are seeing secular growth. And let's just let's just separate stay at home and going back to work. Right. Let's just talk about some of the key technology initiatives. AI, cloud, data center, retail e-commerce, anything that has auto or industrial exposure, those are the areas where I think you're going to, and many more, by the way, and I think you're going to continue to see their total addressable markets expand, companies taking market share, free cash flow uh, generation will be huge. And so those are really the positive characteristics, and those are the themes that I want exposure to. I don't own any of the names that you had just talked about. The, The valuations were always very rich for me. So what I want to do is, and and I got to tell you, I mean, one of the reasons why I've been selling Microsoft, I sold outright of Salesforce.com and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm selling some Facebook uh, because A, they're very well owned, B, they're very well liked um, and they've, and the valuations are just, I can't understand them. They're, they're, they're extended. When I look at what I do own in Broadcom, in LAM Research, in Applied Materials, in IBM, looking at Accenture and NXPI, all of those companies are trading at a much better, if in my mind, a much lower valuation. And I can actually understand well. um, why they're this low. And maybe over time, they'll cont- they're, they're, they have exposure to these end markets. And over time, they should gain market. Okay, I'm thinking back to many conversations that we've had over the years where let's take Amazon for an example, Steph, where you could never get Mm -hmm. your arms around the valuation or at least for so long. It just wasn't what you did. Right. Bottoms up value investor couldn't get my arms around what this valuation is. 
And then at some point you said, you know what, I get it. And I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to buy an Amazon because I know how transformative this company is going to be. And it's going to grow into its valuation, or at least I hope it's going to at some point. You have made the exception (laughs) in cases like that. You can't do it with some of these, though. Tell me why. I'm. I know, but here's the thing, Scott. So I own 44 names. I cannot, I can own one or two or maybe even three companies like an Amazon where the valuations are just meteoric, right? I get that. Um, but I was able to do kind of a sum of the parts, if you will, on Amazon way back when. Um, and I was able to get comfortable with the fact that the, the company, the retail exposure, back in 2017, they had 37% of U.S. e-commerce market share. Um, By the end of this year, it's going to be 50%. That's just tremendous growth. On AWS, they're the leader, and there's only 15% of workloads that are on the cloud. And so you can see where they will grow into their valuation. Oh, by the way, advertising, and that's cyclical, right? But even last quarter, my goodness, 64% year-over-year growth in advertising. This is a company. This is a huge-sized company to grow that kind of revenue in advertising. So I was willing to do the sum of the parts for that. I I was able, by the way, I own Salesforce. I was able to get around the price to sales being quite quite high. Um, I understand that there are pockets that you want to p- kind of invest in uh, where there is long-term secular growth. But when the, when the v- valuations get so rich and the ownership gets so rich, right? I mean, 90% of the, comp- the, the sell-siders have buys on Microsoft, 85% on Facebook, 85% on Salesforce. I'm looking for something that's a little bit more contrarian. That's just my style. But yeah, I'll pick one or two of these other names, but not a whole bunch. So, you know, Dr. J, maybe part of Zoom's intraday activity today, which, you know, could break 400 while we're having this conversation. Again, a stock that today, Street loved the numbers, and rightfully so. The stock got to 440. There it is right there, and it's slowly trending lower, threatening to break below $400. Maybe that's just a sign, at least for the time being, that rips in tech because we're still concerned about rates and a lot of other things. Rips in tech are going to be sold. Dips in tech, as we learned yesterday and, you know, some of the days of last week, uh, dips are going to be bought. Is that the way it's going to be for the time being in technology? Yeah, uh, it is, Scott. And uh, yesterday you had Kevin O'Leary. He made that bold call about Zoom, uh, and I credited him uh, with that. Because, you know, I didn't see how they could possibly offer the kind of guidance that they did. But they did. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. uh, But the street, even though it fell in love with that in the after hours and earlier today, uh, pretty much got to thinking more like Steph is thinking and decided, you know, I, I like the stock. I'll like it better if it goes back to 350, where it was a few weeks ago. Um, a 40% correction from that 588 high that it hit. Um, And this is not an outlier. This is something that happens unless you really are beating and crushing. I mean, for instance, Target opened up $2 higher today. Um, Made that nice pop to 188, I think, Scott. uh, And then quickly gave up that and started bleeding lower. Obviously, nowhere near the triple-digit sort of PEs that we're talking about with uh, uh, Zoom or DocuSign or any of these others. But nonetheless, the fact that they didn't offer that guidance and couldn't offer anything other than just what they had already put in the books 
was why I think a lot of people got out of the way and said, you know what, I'll let it ease back. This was 170 bucks a couple weeks back. I'll let it ease back and maybe I pick it up again there. That's opportunistic investing and trading. And that's what I think was going on overnight with Zoom. That's what I think is going on right now with Target for completely uh, different companies. But nonetheless, the way that the street is looking at those companies and deciding, well, I think it's been enough for now. I'll wait and perhaps I'll get a better re-entry. Josh, do, do we have, can we declare that we have some traction in, in tech back or, or, or not yet? Is it going to be like this for a while? As I suggested to John, rips get sold, dips get bought. I mean, it's, it's a nice theory, but the data is the opposite. Investors came in and, and uh, bought stocks uh, last week on the dip. It was actually one of the biggest weekly inflows going back to 2008, according to Bank of America data. Uh, Savita's group puts this together. And the principal sector that they bought on weakness was tech. So um, I understand the theory. I'm just saying that's actually not no, what's no, that's what I'm saying, practice. though. No, the, but, that, but that's, what I, that's what I'm saying, though, that you, you're just you're suggesting. You're I mean, the, the data the you I'm say telling is you they're doing the opposite. Well, they're buying the dips in these stocks. They're, they're clearly taking some profits in right, some of the big rips you listen get. Listen to me. The Nasdaq is down. The Nasdaq opened flat and is now down 1%. It's been bleeding since 9.30 a.m. And that's what stocks are doing. And it's not more complex than that. John's right about what he said about Target. Quarter was perfectly fine. A lot of these companies, perfectly fine. But the overall market is, is down. So some of these big earnings stories are, are fading. It happens all the time. I don't think we should take one day and extrapolate like the way the whole year is going to go. What I would tell you is that the consensus is shifting and has been for a while away from large cap tech and away from S&P 500 growth, quite frankly. Many of the the FANG names that we talk about on the show all the time peaked in July and August and September of last year. That's almost six months ago. Have not made new highs, but the overall market has. So what's working? Well, it's dividend growth is probably going to be the key. If rates are going to continue to rise, hopefully at a slower pace, and the economy is going to continue to reopen, it's not high dividend stocks that are favored in that environment. It's actually companies that are growing their dividends. And you don't have to crowd into Zoom and PayPal and Peloton. That's not what's happening. What's happening is a lot of the stocks Stephanie's in, a lot of the stocks Jimmy's in, they don't have to be the cheapest stocks, but companies that have the ability to pass along higher costs to their customers and raise dividends. Those are the names that work in these types of environments historically. So I was going to ask, you know, so what do we do with an Apple, for example, where Apple yesterday had its best day since October, Jim. And now I'm wondering, you know, have you have you sort of missed your best chance to get into Apple at a really enticing level because it is Apple and it's just one of those stocks that is going to consistently do well? Yeah, I think the chance extends right now. Uh, the, I, I like Apple a lot, to be very clear, for a very specific reason. The forward multiple has come down from 30 to 26. And you may say, well, wait, 26 is a little too high. But, you know, compared to the multiples we're talking on some of these software stocks, this is a high cash flowing, buying back its shares. I'm not going to repeat what Warren Buffett said. You can read the, the letter from this weekend. Um, growing its earnings, shrinking its share base, everything you want here. The peg ratio, which is a measure of how cheap the earnings are, is 1.9 times on Apple. So it's off, what, about 14, 13 percent from its recent high, which was January 25th. 
And I think that's your buying opportunity yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, but just to, I want to accentuate something that, that Josh just said. Well, yeah, just, uh, good, good. Well, just hold on. But Josh, I, I want to accentuate something you just said. I couldn't understand a word he said because you guys were talking over each other. What did you say, Josh? I was just going to say, Jim's right. It's selling at a premium multiple. I think rational investors have concluded that it should. It's the best company in the world. Okay, Jim. Yeah, I, well, so Josh and I agree on that. And I just I want to agree with what he said before about the dividend growers, but not because they're growing their dividends, but because where we are in an economic cycle right now, early in a stimulus-fueled, stimulus-flooded expansion, those industrials, energy, material, financial names, are they have the, fi- the fundamental basis upon which to continue to grow those earnings and dividends. So let me ask you this. So, Stephanie Link, if I said to you, okay, FANGs haven't done all that much. You know, since September, really, they've had fits and starts. Picked up a little lately as the Nasdaq has has come back. But I could go L3. This is Morgan Stanley says, go value. L3 Harris, Lockheed, (laughs) Stanley Black and Decker. I mean, these are your names. Raytheon's a Jimmy name. (laughs) They are. Eastman Chemical, Ingersoll Rand, Diamondback, Marathon Petroleum. If I said fangs or those, you say unequivocally, except for Alphabet. I know you like that one. You go here. You go to these industrials, <laughs> yeah, you go to these value ones, right? Yeah. I'm, yes, yeah. I mean, and I've been for quite a while, right? I mean, I've been all throughout the summer I was adding. I continue to add uh, in industrials, materials, um, and also financials. Some discretionary, too, uh, especially the reopened discretionary. So those are the areas where I like. I, I don't necessarily uh, want to label it value. I'm, I'm thinking more economically sensitive, cyclical companies. And some of them happen to be value. Some of them happen to have some really good valuations as well. Um, but I am overweight those sectors because I believe that the economy is certainly picking up steam. We have been talking about all the data points along the way. Last week, we got such great retail sales numbers in terms of the control group uh, of up 12%, almost up 12%. That goes right into GDP, right? Industrial production is up 9%. Across the board, you're seeing permits at 15-year high. So all kinds of data points are coming in better than expected. And that's the real reason why we talked about last week, why rates are going up. So glad that rates have actually backed down just because I want it to be kind of a measured pace. I don't want it to just have these big, huge moves, these big spikes. Um, So now that it's pulled back a little, bit. The the, the 10-year yields have pulled back a little bit. I think now you can continue to nibble on some of these cyclical companies because as we progress through 2021, you're going to see better GDP, better jobs, better earnings, and you're not going to get the multiple expansion like we saw last year. And we've talked about that, but I will take higher earnings and operating leverage. And that's what the economically sensitive companies have. They have operating leverage, right? They've got pricing power, as Josh just mentioned. So that's why I want to be there too, but I don't want to be 100% into those. As I mentioned before, I still think that there are some secular technology that I also want to balance it but, out but with. But does that? But but does what you just said is that the reason why you bought more Union Pacific, for example? Yeah, I bought Union Pacific because um, Berkshire um, and their note uh, when they talked about Burlington Northern and revenues in 2020 and how much progress they made in second quarter. Burlington Northern, by the way, largest rail company, right in the in the country. So in the second quarter, revenues fell uh, 22 percent. Third quarter, revenues fell 13 percent. Fourth quarter, revenues fell 3 percent. You can see where I'm going with this. And I think Union Pacific will see exactly the same kind of thing. And you're going to start to see growth. And it's really one of the ultimate cyclical companies. If you think the economy is improving, you definitely want to have exposure to the rails. So, John Najarian, from the rails to the cruise lines, if we're talking about Mm -hmm. economic resurgence, value, et cetera, you got Macquarie today upgrading the cruise operators. Carnival 
uh, Royal Caribbean. You've got Carnival Calls. Yes, I do, Scott, and happy about that. Um, we've seen some unusual activity, but I didn't buy it in Norwegian cruise lines. Um, so, yeah, they, they are seeing some institutional money flows. Uh, we already know that uh, the same companies that last year when they were, you know, literally a year ago, Scott, many of these companies were at death's door and they were starting to offer up boats as collateral and guaranteeing sales of boats in order to uh, uh, get the financing they so desperately needed because nothing was floating or nothing was moving. They were floating, but they weren't moving at that time. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm not surprised to see this. Now you've got them offering debt with no uh, uh, collateral up as those boats that I described and so forth. And uh, Mr. Lazary and I are pretty happy with that debt that we bought. I bought it because of his comments on this show last year. And that has been one of the best trades ever, you know, a 12% a yield on that, um, which is now down below five, I think, Scott. I mean, just an amazing trade. Give Lazary credit, not John. But that's why I like that company, Carnival Cruise. And they've got so many different brands, Scott. So, yeah, I'll stick with that. I think that's a reopening play that continues to work. Speaking of things you're doing, why are you buying puts in EV stocks, John? Um, in particular, Scott, we saw some unusual activity in NEO puts, uh, and that was yesterday with the stock at 50. Now the stock's 44. We're also seeing it in Lee, LI. Um, and I think uh, the chip shortage is what <clears throat> NEO cited, Scott, as to the reason why they needed uh, to give a, a, an update on where they stood. And when they did that, immediately it was met with selling pressure. Same thing over in Lee, XPEV, all of those. Now, we know that uh, Elon had to shut down a production facility in Fremont um, for, I think, five days because they didn't have enough chips. This is a problem for those guys. The heavier they are in tech, the more demand for those chips. And until they can start getting satisfied uh, and getting those, um, I think that's going to be troublesome for them. That's why I bought the puts. You, you sold Q calls, calls into Qs. Is that, is that because of the rip yesterday? Yep. Um, Thursday last week with you, I talked about buying those March 310s. Um, then on Friday, I talked and said that we were buying the 320s. Both of those have screamed to the upside through yesterday. And that's why we said, OK, these were options that expire this coming Friday, Scott. So when you've got... You know, the nothing focuses the mind like the gallows, right? So when you know you've only got uh, five more trading days as of last Friday and as of yesterday, now you've got three more full trading days. We took profits, got to the sideline. I'd love to jump back in those, but now we're not seeing um, put buying. We're just seeing people liquidating calls, and we followed that wave. Got you. Thank you for that. All right, uh, Josh, before we take a break, tell me about you. Pan American Silver. You're out. I'm out. I'm in SLV, though, still. I want the metal. I don't want any of these uh, lousy mining stocks. They, they don't work. So <laughs> I'm sure it'll jump 20% by now. It's just as simple, con- just as, simple as that. <laughs> I, honestly, I feel like I could run a mining company better than some of these people. And I really don't know how to even uh, run my own household. So I'm not investing in um, Canadian mining executives anymore. I'm sure they're nice people. Um, but I think, uh, I think the metal should work. 
and I have exposure through the ETF. And that might not be the most upside, but I don't have the downside of the corporate structure basically sitting on top of silver reserves uh, and, and costing shareholders money. All right. Gabish? Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Thank you. All right. Up next, earnings, dividends and activists. The first on CNBC interview with the Kohl's CEO, Michelle Goss. It's straight ahead right here on The Half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. At a Senate hearing, FBI Director Chris Ray says that his agency properly warned other law enforcement about the threats to the Capitol. He condemned the January 6th riot as, quote, domestic terrorism and said that there's no evidence that anti-fascist extremists took part in the assault. Rudy Giuliani's YouTube channel has been suspended again for spreading false claims of election fraud. It's a second suspension this year and a second strike for YouTube. YouTube permanently bans accounts that get three strikes in one 90-day period. Sales are on the rise for six Dr. Seuss books after their publisher said that the titles are going out of print because of racist and insensitive imagery. Three of the books are now at the top of Amazon's movers and shakers list or the biggest gainers in sales within the last 24 hours. And in Berlin, take a look at this. Zookeepers say this cute two-week-old baby gorilla is a girl. Conservationists say that that's a very good thing because uh, breeding programs are hoping to increase the number of gorillas. She is the first gorilla cub born in the Berlin Zoo in 16 years. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Rahel, thank you. Kohl's is higher on its latest results. Courtney Reagan joining us now with the Kohl's CEO, first on CNBC. A lot of issues. There's the quarter, Courtney. There is an activist in the stock and lots for us to talk to Michelle about. Take it away. That's right. Thanks so much, Scott. And thank you, Michelle Goss, for joining us here today on a busy day for Kohl's. Scott mentioned you did report your quarter. You're also looking ahead and giving some guidance, which a lot of retailers aren't doing because of the uncertain environment, including Target this morning. On the call, you said you're extremely confident in your outlook. So why? What makes you so confident in this uncertain environment? And how are you going to increase that profitability? Yeah, thanks, Courtney. It's great to be here. We are confident. 
Um, as we look ahead, uh, we see momentum in our business as we enter 2021. So those strategies that have been accelerating for us in the back half of the year, I'd say on the top line, it's categories like active, athleisure, uh, the home business, our digital operations, those are carrying through. I think importantly, and you just spoke to it, profitability. Um, we're seeing improvements in our gross margin. We're keeping expenses tightly controlled. And this is not about Q4. These are fundamental changes that we're making in our business. So as we model that out and look for rebounding um, through the pandemic and hopefully the economy opening up, the vaccines, et cetera, we are optimistic um, as we enter the year. I'd say especially in the back half, uh, given the macro conditions which are expected to improve, and we have a very big initiative with Sephora that we'll be launching in the fall. I was just going to ask you about Sephora. You're calling it a game changer, but Target's also adding Ulta there, and Sephora does still exist at JCPenney until 2023 when that contract rolls out. So how, why is it going to be a game changer for Kohl's? Well, Courtney, I think it's a game changer for both of us, for Kohl's and Sephora. I mean, it's really about uniting two really strong brands and companies. And what we bring to Sephora is our strong omnichannel platform, 1,160 stores, 95% of which are off-mall. And that was critically important for Sephora that wants to reach that customer off-mall. And we expect with that convenience, with Sephora now being in their neighborhood, we're going to attract a lot of new and younger customers. I mean, for us on many levels, it's transformational. One, it will instantly turn us into a true destination for beauty. We're building a phenomenal 2,500 square foot shop front of the store. We'll even have branding, a dedicated door in most of our stores. Uh, we've already secured a hundred of phenomenal brands, even some exclusive to Sephora. So for us, it's about transforming beauty, but importantly, the halo effect that we'll get from all these new customers and speaking to our existing customers as well. We now know that there is a group of activist investors involved in Kohl's with a nine and a half percent stake. But look, at the end of the day, they want to increase shareholder value. I assume that's what you want to do, too, outside of reconstituting the board. Are, are their ideas really so wrong? No, well, what I would say is that we published our strategy last October. Of course, we had been working on it for some time, and it addresses everything from top line, like I said, transforming our categories like active, getting into beauty, um, reigniting our women's business, and then important profitability drivers around supply chain transformation, inventory management, um, what we're doing on expenses, leveraging investments, frankly, we've made for the last couple years around areas in technology and marketing and store labor. So they did come out last week publicly uh, with a proxy fight, both with their ideas as well as nominating nine directors. And as I examine those ideas, there's a lot that actually is reflective in the plan that we've been working on and that we're actually already seeing proof points and momentum. But to your point, um, I, I, I think we share the, the alignment that this is about creating for creating value for all shareholders. And that's what my intention is. And I wake up every day saying, how can we grow our business, grow it profitably and create value for our shareholders? Hey, Michelle, it's Scott Wapner. Thank you so much for being here. Um, on, on that note, and let's pick up on, on what Mr. Duskin and his group have asked for. As you said, nine directors. Um, are you not willing to give any 
they are your largest shareholder outside of the index funds. Do they deserve representation as a result of that? You know, what I would say to that, Scott, is, hey, we engage with the shareholders all the time. We have engaged in constructive dialogue with these investors, and you know, our goal would be to get to some common ground. Their answer to that was last week to launch a public proxy fight and nominate nine directors in a control slate, and that is not something we're supportive of. Our board has been supportive of all the strategies that I've been talking to you about, the investments, and we're undertaking a, a massive transformation for Kohl's, and we will benefit from all the disruption out there, grow our market share, and uh, ultimately be a very successful retailer in the years to come. So, so as of today, you're not willing to give on any of the directors? No, what I would say is we've been in dialogue. I really can't speak to that. Um, what I can say is always open to ideas that will create shareholder value and open to creating a dialogue to get to some common ground. Let me let me ask you this. Um, Courtney referenced it in her opening uh, question or two to you about how optimistic you are to uh, as you look out in the future. I'm wondering if you're as optimistic as you truly say that you are. Why did you reinstitute the dividend um, to a dollar rather than the pre-COVID level of near three dollars, and that's below the level of some of your competitors. Does that suggest as much optimism as you say? Well, you know what I would say with optimism is we are putting a guide out there that is very thoughtful, right? It's growing our business in the mid-teens from a top line. Our operating income, four and a, four and a half to five percent. Now, our ultimate goal by 2023 is seven to eight percent. So I think we're being prudent and planful. We're going to control our inventories. We drove 10 year high in inventory turn in Q4. That discipline is going to maintain as we chase um, opportunities. And as it relates to our capital deployment back to shareholders, I'm very pleased that we're reinstituting both the dividend and share buyback. And, you know, we have a strong cash generating business. So that's our first step as we rebuild our business and get ourselves back on a trajectory as the economy and as consumers normalize. Under what scenario would you consider raising the dividend further? You know, we're going to start here, Scott. I feel like it's a great step in the right direction, demonstrating the confidence in our business and the, the guide that we've put out for 2021. You know, Michelle, you, you said today on the earnings call that in 2020, you can attribute at least two million new unique customers shopping at Kohl's because of the Amazon returns program. Some of the activists request, in fact, were more details on that program. So was that revelation sort of giving them a little bit of the information they were asking for? Well, Courtney, what I'd say is all of our investors have been really curious about this program because it's very unconventional, very different. And so I think people have been trying to figure out how it all works. As we've continued to say, it's accretive to the top line. It's accretive to the bottom line. And we said from day one, this was about driving traffic and driving new customers, our number one priority. And so we wanted to share with all of our shareholders that, in fact, that program is doing that. Now, we brought in more new customers than just that number. But I do think it's it's a great proof point on how well the program's working. We have a great partnership with with Amazon and we'll look to build it going forward. 
You've always been a big proponent of your stores. You have about 1,160 of them. But you also just said that in this last quarter, 42% of sales came online. I know stores play a role in fulfilling that, but do you really think that you need to continue to have 1,160 stores if 40 or maybe even 35% of your sales are coming online? Courtney, absolutely. I think our stores are one of our biggest assets. And what has proved really as a big advantage over the last year is our off-mall location. Customers are looking for convenience. It allowed us to deploy such innovations as curbside pickup. We were amongst the first in our sector. And there's going to be a lot, continue to be a lot of disruption in the industry. And I do believe coal stands to benefit from that. As the economy normalizes, as people get back out of their house on a more frequent basis, they're going to want to shop in stores. And our stores are healthy. And we've talked about the power of our cash generating model, even during the pandemic 2020, including the time when our stores were closed, 95% of our stores were cash flow positive. So it is an asset and our most, our most loyal customers are actually shopping both our digital channel and our store channel. And it's the power of this omni-channel foundation that has been a real asset to attract partners like and Amazon, importantly, Sephora, other brands that we've been announcing. So I absolutely believe that the combination is a point of difference for Kohl's. Michelle Goss, CEO of Kohl's, thank you for keeping us updated and make sure you continue to do so. I'm going to pass it back over to Scott. All right, Court, appreciate that very much. And of course, uh, Michelle being here as well. Up next, trades on some of the biggest analyst calls of the day. Dr. J's got unusual still to come. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Rahel's back with us with some calls of the day. I have some interesting ones today. Yes, I do. Hi, Scott. So let's start with City Upgrading TripAdvisor to a buy with a $62 price target. So TripAdvisor is testing a new subscription service that costs $100 a year. And City believes that that could reach 10 million subscribers and then generate a billion dollars. They're calling this new th- service a thesis changer. Uh, staying with City, they're also upgrading Beyond Meat to buy. So Target here jumps to 184 from 141. Firm does acknowledge that there are some near-term headwinds because of increased investments. But Scott, they also think that some of the company's partnerships with Big players like McDonald's, Young Brands, and Pepsi really position Beyond as a category leader long term. And Dow being upgraded to overweight at Wells Fargo. So the new price target here is 77 from 60 bucks a share. Analysts expect most of the company's portfolio to benefit from higher chemical prices. You can see shares are up about 2.5%. A firm also believes that strong demand and the impact of severe weather will also drive earnings growth. Scott, this is a stock that's within 2% of its all-time high that it hit last week. It's also one of the top gainers in materials over the past year. I'll send right. it back to you. All right, good stuff, Rahel. Thank you. Uh, Jim and Steph, you both, both own it. Steph, quick, then Jim, quick. I want to hear from both of you. 
It's the ultimate cyclical, right? It's packaging, plastics, it's infrastructure, it's coding. So if you believe the economy is recovering, this is your play. They, do, they have done a great job in cost cuts and they have pricing power. So margins also go higher. It's a 9% free cash flow yield. It's very cheap still. Yeah, uh, Scott, I've got one word from you to mangle the uh, line from The Graduate. Uh, that one word is polyethylene. Uh, this is about volume and pricing both <laughs> increasing early in an economic expansion, and that is what Dow Chemical is about, polyethylene pricing and volume. Have right. fun with it. All right, good stuff. All right, coming up, John's unusual activity. sees on my list. I think, I think Jim Leventhal is going to be happy with this. We'll do that straight ahead. All right, John Najarian, tell us unusual activity for today. All right, Scott, and uh, unusual activity from yesterday as well. It's Rocket RKT. Why? Because Dan Gilbert and Jay Farner are two of the guys behind this wonderful company. Um, And uh, I think, as Jim Cramer said, it's not just a mortgage company. It's a tech company. Uh, They don't just write mortgages and refis. And uh, our beta-tested social media stuff right now, Scott, picked up on yesterday some really uh, just uh, hugely bullish comments over on the Reddit board, Wall Street Bets, again. So, yeah, these men and women are back, and they're into this one in a big way. How do I know? Because the average daily volume in here, Scott, on the call side was about 80,000 calls per day. Yesterday, it traded 320,000 calls as soon as our heat seekers saw it, and then this social media post hit over there on Reddit. Uh, Then, Scott, today, in the first hour and a half, it traded 340,000 calls in the first hour and a half. So a lot of that is exactly the same sort of paper that we saw in GameStop, Scott. So yesterday they were buying the 2350 calls in big numbers. The stock was 2360. Today, as the stock pushes towards 30, maybe even through there, I'm not sure right now, um, they're buying a ton of upside calls Um, They bought the 2350s that expire Friday. They bought those yesterday. The 37s are what they're buying today in the biggest numbers. So that's another really bullish bet. About a 40% short on the squeeze here, Scott. Uh, That seems to be what's behind the drive. Mm. And I'll probably be in those March 37s for about mm, two weeks, Scott. Okay. You got GM? I've got another quick one. Yeah, this is the one, like you said, that Jim's going to love. General Motors, uh, they're buying the April 60 calls, Jim, with the stock at 54 bucks. Um, that's an explosive upside move. They bought 18,000 of them, which is a really big trade, 1.8 million share equivalent. Now I just checked it moments ago, 37,000 of those have traded. So they've doubled up on that huge volume already. I'll be in those probably for four weeks, and that bodes well for General Motors and what Mary Barra is doing over there. Yeah. All right. Good stuff, Doc. Thank you. All right, Jim. And then Josh, because Josh owns it too. But Jimmy, you you first. You're as identified as General Motors as any shareholder I can think of. That's right. (laughs) Thank you for that. You know, what I find interesting there is the April expiration, because I don't think they're going to be in time for the earnings. You know, what you really need to see from GM is the next earnings report have a blowout and then estimates go up because you haven't seen estimates going up in the last few months. That's what's missing from the stock. I think it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to happen in time for the April expiration. Wish those guys had taken May, though. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. All right, Josh? (laughs) It's a a $80 billion market cap. If Cruise were to come public as a standalone company, 
in this market environment, it would probably be valued at like 30 or $40 billion, not even exaggerating. Um, so if we see uh, news about Waymo or other autonomous driving, people get excited about that. Um, Cruise is going to be in those conversations because in many regards, from a technological standpoint, it's way ahead um, of, of its peers. And then you look at all the other stuff they're doing, the electric Hummer sold out uh, on, on pre-orders, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a market cap, probably at least $100 billion by the end of this year. And I might be underestimating the power of people getting excited about some of the projects that they're working on. So I'm thinking about it like a cyclical, but also a tech stock. And I think a lot of the street is going to catch up to me later. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Okay. We got more trades ahead. We're back in just two minutes. Time for the futures outlook. The S&P 500 stumbling today after its best rally in nine months. Let's bring in Bill Baruch and Jeff Kilberg for a play on the futures from here. Bill Baruch, you first. Thanks, Judge. You know, going back to the end of last week, I'm long on the future side, the S&P, as well as the NASDAQ. And as an investment advisor, I put all cash I could to work. I think we're going to see new record highs here. And on Friday, we held a really great trend line, 37.85, going back to March. I think uh, really the path least resistance is higher. We need to close above 3,900. But, you know, overall, that VIX spike we saw, it's been lower highs in VIX, not just since March of last year, but going back to June. And that spike, very similar on Friday, what we saw at the end of January. I think we have a very similar pattern that led to new highs in February. And we're going to see that again here right around the corner. Right. 4,600 is my rolling target, 12 months. All right. Jeff Kilberg, what about you, man? 4,600 is a lot, but I agree with Bill, Judge. Looking for 4,000 print before the quarter's over. But the reason I think we're going to get there is for not all the reasons we've seen. This is a market cap weighted index. Look at the top 10 names, Judge. We know all these names. These are the FANG stocks. Those top 10 names make up 28% of the S&P 500. I'm looking for the heavy lifting to be moving forward for the top 11 names to 20 names. So look at the second tier of 10 names. It's Intel. It's MasterCard. It's Visa. Those only make up 7.5% of the overall index. But those are the names, as we see this rotation trade, that's what's going to propel us higher to 4,000, the E-mini S&P 500. All right, good stuff, gentlemen. We'll talk to you soon. We'll do final trades after this quick break. It is time for final trades. Stephanie Link, you start us off, please. Sure. Morgan Stanley. So the Eaton Vance deal closed yesterday. Now they have $5.5 trillion in assets under management and wealth management. Um, combine this with E-Trade. You combine this with their great investment banking platform. Equities are on fire. M&A IPOs are also on fire. And they have a bunch of cash. And they're buying back a ton of stock. No wonder. They're doing all the right things. Yeah. I really like this story for 2021. Okay. Dr. J, got to be quick. Draft King Scott bought it during the show. Oh, great stuff. Okay. Uh, Farmer Jim and then Josh. Cleveland Cliffs, the correction is over. Yes. Watching uh, TripAdvisor, no position yet. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower? The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.